Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. My aunt was a, she, she was a very, very intelligent woman, educated, and lived in Tehran. And they said all women have to wear the cover. I mean, when I say cover, Ryan, means you can, you can only see your face. Now it's gotten better. You can only see your face. And my aunt said, are you kidding me? I'm not going to do this. You know what they did to people? They started putting fears in all women by throwing acid in their faces. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it allowed me to focus and channel my energy we're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's it's five percent of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. Folks, it's good to be back in the shy. I've been on the road all week. I was in Oklahoma Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, doing uh, some interviews for an upcoming documentary on the Smith Brothers. We'll have full details soon, but right now, just know that there's a seven-part documentary series coming out on the Smith Brothers this winter, and I've been on the road like a madman lately doing interviews for it. But on to the guest. My guest today, folks, is Reza Abidi. He was born in Kermanshah, Iran. He was a two-time Iranian national champion. Life was going great for Reza until the Iranian Revolution of 1978 started, and that changed his life. He was on, you know, he was a member of the party, or he supported the party that was ousted, so to speak, and so life became very difficult for him and his family after the revolution. Long story short, in 1982, Reza and three other Iranian wrestlers defected to the United States, and this is his story, folks. It's incredible. It's very moving. I will say that, much to my dismay, there's a few parts of the audio where the Wi-Fi connection was just not strong enough, and the audio is a little unclear, but it's solid 95% of the way through. Last but not least, folks, fan of the week goes to Blaine Christie. That's Blaine underscore Christie on the gram. Thank you for the support, my friend. Excited to watch you back out at the IHSA State Tournament. Last but not least, if you guys want to support the show, please give us a review or rating and subscribe to the show. That's it, folks. Let's give it up for Reza Abidi. Reza Abidi, welcome to the show, good sir. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much, Wayne. I I don't think I've ever been as excited for a conversation as I am for our uh, our podcast here, sir. Let's let's just go back to the very beginning. You were born in the 1960s in Western Iran. <coughs> Tell us about your your parents and in the environment you grew up in. 
Well, I, uh, I grew up in the big family um, in, um, in Iran, a small city called Kermanch. And the city is uh, about two hours, two and a half hours from the border of uh, Iraq. So <clears throat> my parents are, we're, uh, people from Kermanshah are Kurds because Kurdistan is very close to Kermanshah. So my mom um, was Turk, which is kind of odd uh, combination because uh, she, she spoke uh, Turkish with, uh, to us and my dad, of course, Kurdish. But of course, the, 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 uh, the main language is <clears throat> Farsi. Mm-hmm. So I, <clears throat> sorry, I have a little. No problem. You want to grab some water? Yeah. No, I'm good. I, I'll just drink a little bit of. And we can cut any, there's always opportunities to cut all this. So no problem at all. Okay. So, um, um, you know, growing up was great, even though we didn't have money, but my father worked for, um, um, you know, for a sporting complex, which was belonged to, obviously, everything belonged to the government. Yeah. Like a physical education, he was in charge of different sports, mainly wrestling. So we grew up uh, around a lot of athletes. And that's why in my family, we're 10. Um, four of my sisters, they are gymnasts. And then, uh, of course, my uh, older brother was a... Uh, he swam and also he did volleyball. Uh, the one that was older than me, two years older than me, he wrestled and he was he was the one that really got me involved in wrestling and 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 helped me a lot in wrestling. And my younger brother, uh, Hushang, was uh, a gymnast as well. As actually, he was the one who brought the girls into that sport. And you know, growing back then in there in Iran, and especially being in a small town, it was kind of odd to let girls <clears throat> play sports. And that was one of the things that my friends always said, well, why would you let your sisters play sports? But of course, my mom and dad, even though they were illiterate, but they were very open-minded people and, and they never forced us to do anything that we didn't want. And, and that helped us with, you know, we are right now so and this was all before the revolution of 79 this was yes way before 79 and back then uh, we all, i always sometimes talk to my cousin who lives in iran and this was even though like i said we were poor but but we had a good time we had i mean we had a roof on our head and over our head and we had um food and we had clothes <clears throat> and we had a lot of fun you know, playing outside in a neighborhood that we lived forever. Everybody knew, everybody in, in my hometown uh, knew my dad because of, uh, he was involved in sports and he was a very respectful person in that aspect. So. <clears throat> and what was the, what was the culture like in terms of, you know, before the revolution of 79, was it, um, you know, like religious freedom and, and people were more free to do what they wanted or was it still, fairly strict in the in the sense of public outspeak and so forth no when <clears throat> when i look back now i think um the country was really good i mean obviously there was some sort of corruption in the government 
because if you knew someone, then you could get a job or, <clears throat> or go to university. But as far as other things, you know, like uh, other religions, uh, yeah, people, people pretty much, they were free. You know, you, <clears throat> if you wanted to go to mosque and, and pray or, you know, in my hometown, we didn't have a church, but <clears throat> I, other towns that like, you know, Tehran, I'm sure they had sort you know, places like that. And, and we had some people like Kurds, obviously there are, you know, because, because we grew up as, as Shia, because the, the Muslim has two branches, <clears throat> Shia and Sunni, and there was no, not much of discrimination between, between those. And I didn't personally feel it at all. So life was good. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't see any, any huge impact on that area. And I understand you and your, your family, sometimes you and your brothers would sleep on the roof in the summer if it was too hot back in the well, day. It, it, it was, it was a, a cultural thing because, um, first of all, it was, it was cooler and it was fun. We, my dad uh, made a huge, humongous bed that we, summertime, we would put it, put it up and then we had a little, like a net over it and we would crawl up. I mean, we were kids. I mean, you know, imagine you don't let kids crawl up the ladders that it wasn't even sturdy, but, but we would get up and sit there and, you know, talk. I mean, we had a lot of uh, time to play and talk. And, 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 and I think that is part of the reason I'm so close to my siblings because of, you know, we had that kind of childhood. Yeah, 10 siblings growing up. Yes. That's, uh, did you have electricity? Uh, we did. Uh, I remember, I told this to Kristen, Kristen Orloff. Uh, I uh, remember the first time we had uh, TV and she asked me, how did she remember when it was? I said, because Muhammad Ali was, um, was uh, fighting George Foreman. Wow. And that's, that's how I knew because and then the, the damn TV wasn't working and I had to go in the roof and move the antenna. We were so excited. It was a black and white TV. So, but we didn't have a refrigerator growing up till later on and washer and dryer, none of these. And my mom and my sisters always washed everything outside by hand. And imagine, remember my hometown is almost, you can compare it to Iowa. Winter time is super cold and snows, and and then summertime is gets muggy and and pretty hot. So, um, so we had um, you know we had electricity the whole time. Well, during the war we didn't have that much of that, but but we did have electricity. And but some of the things that that you know I tell my students that. It's, you take it for granted and they don't understand not having a refrigerator. Go, how did they, how did you keep the stuff? Well, we get, we got everything fresh every day and, and we had a basement. The basement was cool in the winter, in the summertime. So it was good, but, um, we never thought about it that way, but it was still good. I love, I love hearing about that because it just, it sounds like an enjoyable struggle and everyone's going through it together. And yeah. Everybody, you know, like I said, it, we had TV and since we had, and people say, how did you only have two hours of TV a day? The 
the network only worked two hours a day because obviously it was new and it was black and white. And we had our neighbors because our neighbors didn't have a TV. They would come and watch TV. And we had like 20 kids in our living room watching like cartoon or something. So it was crazy. How big of a hero was Muhammad Ali to see him on TV back then? Oh my God, people love them. People love them because, because the way he carried himself, the way he, he inspired people and, and, and he, he affected a lot of people who loved him. So usually uh, the, the black race in Iran, um, they have a lot of respect for, mm. for those people because, they, people because people in Iran know that they always struggle you know, with different things. So, and that's the reason when Jordan Boro went to world championships, they treated him like a king. I mean, till this day, if you get a chance, talk to that guy and say, tell me about experience when he went to Iran. I mean, they would never do that for him here. But in Iran, they had thousands of people gathered at the airport. They gave him flowers and gifts and they just, he loved it when he went to Iran and and competed at the uh, World Cup. They love him that much there. Yes, yes. You know, it's it just people love um, athletes regardless of their, uh, you know, whatever they're from. And that's why, you know, these guys go to Iran and, and they, you know, you're from, uh, Amer- especially the American wrestlers. I think they have, Iranian wrestlers, they have a, a really a good connection between American wrestlers and Iranian wrestlers because they're really cool. I mean, when you meet, uh, you know, all these American wrestlers that <clears throat> top-notch one, they are great guys. So yeah, it's cool to see it, it transcend borders. Uh, certainly relevant now during our time. But going back to uh, back to your childhood, you know, so once you got involved with wrestling, you mentioned your dad was the coach. Is it something where the Iranian government had a structured program to bring kids up, or was it individualized? Each town had their own club and team. Well, <clears throat> everything was through a club. For example, in my high school, we had one PE teacher for 1,500 students, and the guy would sit in the office and drink tea, and we were out playing the sports, and, you know, playing volleyball, basketball, whatever it was. But then if you wanted to play certain sports, and in this case wrestling, I belonged to a club. And then I wrestled in my club. And since I was pretty experienced, I was able to recruit kids from my school and have like a high school team that represented my high school for four years. We were, <clears throat> we were number one in our state because we had a bunch of good wrestlers. Mm-hmm. So um, going back to what you asked, our gym that we had, it was, uh, it, it's as big as high, like my high school gym. Mm-hmm. My high school gym is huge. And then we had mats wall to wall. And this place would serve about, uh, I would say, uh, 1,000 to 12, 1,300 wrestlers a day, but different time. For example, you know, between eight o'clock to 10 o'clock, a group, another 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. So they had, but each time you had probably 150 kids there, you know, wrestling. And then of course you had different coaches. 
And if you wanted to be the best, then you would join the group between four and six. That was the best wrestlers that they would come and wrestle. Say sometimes, you know, I just needed to get um, a good workout. So before a competition, maybe a few days, I would go to a, a little, you know, not a vigorous uh, club mm -hmm. in, my, in my club or, or my hour, the hourly that we had. And then <clears throat> if I wanted to test myself and go against some really good guys, I would go like between four and six. And it's crazy that there were a lot of different clubs in my hometown and we served a lot of wrestlers. And my hometown was, back then, was one of the best, I would say, top three or five in the nation in Iran. Wow. So, yeah. so you would have multiple clubs using the same gym throughout the day? Well, it was the same club, say, Dana Point Wrestling Club, but it belonged to us, and we used the gym. And then, say, another club, they had their own gym, and they wrestled. They had, I don't know, 1,800, 500 wrestlers wrestling there. Then they have obviously beginners and intermediate and then advanced that they, would, they have different hours. That's so many kids. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so uh, crazy that because, and then it's, it's the, another uh, part that we did say we had parties, you know, like birthdays, not birthdays, you know, we had like gathering in my house a lot of times since we had access to the wrestling room, my uncles would make me wrestle with my brothers because they loved it. We would go in a wrestling room and wrestle. <laughs> so, so for fun, I mean, for fun, you were in the park and you would see friends there just messing around and wrestling. And there was no shame to it. Like here, you do it, they go, oh, what are they doing? You know, but over there, they do it all the time. So it's no big deal. Is wrestling as big as soccer in Iran? It's as big, you know, but... Um, they, Soccer's a little bit bigger? A little bigger, but the respect that they give to wrestlers, it's different than soccer. It's because wrestlers, they're warriors. They're, they're, they, they, when they say something, they mean it. So uh, they look at you as a different a breed of athlete than other sports. And that's why when you're in the street, you know, and you have a, you have a cauliflower ear, all of a sudden people look at you differently. You know, I mean, some of these um, wrestlers that they really, uh, you know, they were world champions, Olympic champions. My gosh, if, they, if these guys go somewhere, they would not let them pay for their food. Because people go, I am not going to let you pay for your food because we have, I don't think they soccer players get the same respect as mm -hmm. us but they're still obviously great athletes but it just they look at wrestling totally different so if like ali reza de beer or charati go into a yazdani charati go into a restaurant those people everyone knows who they are oh my god they would they would shake their hands they would kiss their hands they would <laughs> kiss their faces no i mean it's like they know it's it's like I said, you get a different, um, uh, people look at you completely different. You can, wow. you, can you know, it, it's, it's crazy that when you see people, when you go places and, and they're famous and they come in. And, 
I remember when I was in Air Force, I had seven great uh, wrestlers from Iran came to visit me. You should have seen that base. That base went crazy. My, my uh, officer, who, you know, thought I was kind of, because, you know, sometimes you go, oh, you're from Kermanshah, because you're not from Tehran. You know, they look at you a little differently. But when these guys came in, it was like amazing. And all these officers, they wanted to shake their hands and talk to them and invite them to drink tea. And so it's a different, uh, different world when you're a top-notch wrestler and walk around in Iran. Wow, that sounds awesome. Now, what, I'm particularly interested in the youth development because I've had a number of guests on who grew up in Ukraine or the Soviet Union. And they talk about how different the youth training was there compared to the United States. And so if you can think back to when you were 10 or 11, how many times a week were you practicing and how different or similar is it to youth wrestling in the United States? Well, it was a lot different because uh, we practiced uh, six times a week, um, <clears throat> about two hours uh, every time. But like I said, um, our coaches, then they, we would you know, like we never lifted weights, at least back then, but now obviously it's different. People are looking at a different, a different um, aspect or different way of uh, training. But back then we did a lot of cholesterol stuff and <clears throat> we went to the mountains as a group and we would be climbing up the mountains, coming down, doing pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, you know, like uh, some of the training that we did, it was since we didn't have access to weights, like we would be um, literally going out in the middle of nowhere, pushing a Jeep, you know, putting a, like a 10-year-old kid behind a wheel and pushing the Jeep for like two miles or running against the stream up to the knee for like three or four miles. So the training that we did, and then, my, you know, we would do uh after practice every day we would do 40 minutes of um you know like pull-ups push-ups i mean we would do people don't you know sometimes they think i'm, I'm kidding but we would do thousand squats non-stop body weight squats I mean, how, how body many for real do you think in a row 500 or more than that you no know, we would do always 500 or more you know, in one and go then, or it breaks in between. one. No, we never stopped because Ooh. it was like, and then, and then when you're training with these guys, you can't stop because then they're going to look at you. Oh, you're a wimp. Yeah. So you would, you would just, that's how you get tough. That's, I think that's the reason Iranians are harder to get taken down because their legs are, and then we would have like someone grab our legs for you know, 10 minutes, try to take us down. Yeah. And your job was only try to maintain balance. And, and this, these are the things that you do during training and, and besides obviously working out wrestling. For right. example, when, my, when I'm with my kids, I ask them to go, they go one minute and then you know, we go round robin. But over there, sometimes I would be in the middle and wrestling with three, four guys for half hour, 40 minutes straight. And that's, and then you do jump rope. 
2,000 jump rope. So nonstop. And you mentioned so, when you were up in the, the tacky Boston Mountains, I know I'm butchering that name, but the, uh, the mountain range you had mentioned, you said you literally ran upstream in the water. That's how they knew when we, were, we ran up the mountain, people knew we were wrestlers because wrestlers only could do those things. We would run up because we wanted to obviously train our legs, you know, conditioning, and then running down. Normal person would take like, um, in a pretty good shape, take about an hour to get up and down. We would do it in 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And then coming down, and then we were, were doing all these, you know, push-ups and pull-ups on the trees. And so it's, the training was pretty rigorous, pretty rigorous when it came to training. I mean, imagine running up, uphill, running up a river with the current. That is... It, yeah, the, the, that is just like, you know, and then, of course, we, we, we had some rivers that it would come, come up, up all the way up to our knees. And we would be running, running, and, and that's how your legs get so strong. And when somebody is touching it, it's hard to, you know, get you down. When you get a single leg from you, a double leg, so you're going to be able to maneuver and, and get out of it. And what about competitions? Were you doing a lot of matches when you were in elementary school? See, this is the thing that I wish I could change in America. No, we didn't. We competed, you know, maybe, um, maybe three times a year. Hmm. We did not compete like here we do with my high school. We compete pretty much every weekend. And I just, I'm, I'm a, a, a firm believer that a competition is hard on your body because you have to lose weight, you have to be on weight and all that. But when you get you ready, we got ready for like, say, uh, when I was in high school. We get ready for to compete in uh, uh, state championship, which wasn't a big deal. You win that, then you're part of the team for state of Kermanshaw, and you represent the, the team to go to national, and then you go to nationals. And then, of course, in high school in Iran, you, you can go to nationals in high school. It's so stinking tough because you may be wrestling the world champion. Because you don't know. I mean, all those guys that you wrestled from other states, it could, it could be world champion, their age group, and, and, or maybe even because they wrestled all the way to 18, maybe even um, some uh, open senior world champions that you're going to have there. So uh, competition, not, not a lot of competition. Mm. You know, mainly a lot of training, a lot of training. Every, uh, every guest I've had on who grew up outside the United States all says the same that they didn't compete that much. And a lot of the folks who are from Dagestan, they say that they didn't even drill that much. Like the U S drills a lot more. Um, and I always wonder how do they get so good if they're not drilling? You know, you would think you'd have to drill more, but they always say they didn't drill as much. It was more play wrestling. Well, I don't and I know ran. about that. Did you drill no. a lot? I ran. <clears throat> we did. We did. Yeah. We always <clears throat> we did a warm up, pretty good warm up, And we <clears throat> now, I see in America, they're doing our warm-up that we used to do. Talk to me about it. What so, was it? <clears throat> well, um, like in my high school, I changed it because kids come in and sit down and try to stretch. But, but it's always nice to move it with movement. 
warm yourself up as you're moving, you're moving your shoulders, your neck, your back, your lower back, your ankles, and every part of your body by the time you're drenching sweat, sweat by the time you're done with <clears throat> like 15 minutes of uh, uh, warm up, and then you're ready to drill. You drill, but see, the drilling is so intense that, again, I wish my kids would do that because then you don't get hurt. You know, when you drill hard like that, you still go through all motion without that. Then you have, you know, comp you know, you kind of go for 20 minutes. Depends on, obviously, if it's close to the competition, it's less, but, you know, like you go with through three guys fresh guys you wrestle with i wrestle with you for maybe uh, 10 minutes i get you tired another fresh body gets on me i wrestle with that person and that's how you do it and then you finish with more mm -hmm. calisthenic stuff to finish your day wow so you guys were it's a similar structure but to your point the calisthenics and the comp calisthenics were were heavily focused in the competitions not as much and so yes. this is kind of your life growing up, right? Things are going in your world. Things are great. How old are you in 1979? Well, I'm 60 now. So 1979 is what? Okay. I'm just trying to get a sense of like, were you a teenager or 20 year old when the revolution happened and your life got turned on its head? I, I was, I was, um, I was a teenager when okay. that revolution happened. You know, I still, because they closed all schools. Once they, you know, closed everything and we were out in the street doing our, you know, duty as far as, you know, causing trouble for the government because we wanted the government to, to kind of leave the country <clears throat> so we could have a better, obviously, moderate um, a government who can, who could, help us with because obviously as you know in iran is a rich country but but shah was doing a good job now i can see it in a different perspective but he was doing a good job but but i guess we wanted more yeah but you know then we hear i mean nobody would say anything against shah and all of a sudden we heard a guy <clears throat> that i never knew ayatollah khomeini was completely talking trash to about Shaw. And we thought, wow, who's this guy that he has guts to do this? And that's how we were attracted to him because obviously he was telling us a lot, bunch of lies. And that's how, you know, we were, we didn't know it back then. We thought we're gonna have, a, we're gonna have freedom for everyone. Doesn't matter who you are, whether you're Muslim, Jews, a Christian, whatever, but oh, if you if you are lefty, whatever. But obviously, that wasn't the case, and they he completely deceived us. So, and for people who, have, who aren't as familiar with the situation, so from like the forties through nineteen seventy nine, the Shah was in power, and he was propped up by the U.S. Um, was it still a Muslim, uh, you know, an Islamic government, or was it a was that not as important? Yes. It was. Okay. No, 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 no. Because Sean knew that, uh, you know, like my mother. My mother was, um, obviously, she always covered herself because of religion. 
and uh, she was pretty mother. She was pretty mother. I would I would even think that she was pretty pretty. Even though she covered, she did the the normal ritual stuff, praying and all the stuff. But she completely she had a very open minded person. Mm-hmm. But but the the group that came in, they were they didn't we didn't know it back then, but they pretty much fanatic zealot a group of people and we didn't know that we thought <clears throat> we thought you know once they come in the freedom is for everyone but at least Shaw was pretty much he would let everybody do everyone you know do the, the whatever they were they were doing yeah. you know freedom of, of of course he had you know he had his uh, faults as well but not so much like them. Could women, could like, did women have rights after the revolution? Yes. Uh, well, no, no, no. After the revolution, I'm telling you, revolution happened six months later. I mean, I didn't know the word communism and socialism. I mean, I, I heard, but I didn't know it truly what it was. But then I heard these people were saying, oh, that guy is communist. That guy is very lifty and he reads things about Marx and Lenin and things like that. And I'm going, what's going on? What's wrong with being communist? And I'm trying to read stuff. And then all of a sudden they banned it, all lifty books. And you couldn't read things to kind of make you more intelligence as far as figuring out what's going on in the world. So they basically wanted to keep everyone in dark. And that's when I said, I did not sign up for this. And that's when um, some of my good friends that we grew up together, we wrestled, you know, each other, we wrestled and, and went tournaments and we shared a lot of good stuff and that stuff together. And, and all of a sudden, I stayed away from them because they, they became very um, religious. And I go, well, I, I respect you as a being you know, you want to pray and stuff, but not to a point to, to hurt somebody else. I remember I had a physics teacher in high school after the revolution because the guy was, I guess, preaching a lot of lefty stuff. And they went and they pulled him out of his house and they shot him right in front of his family. So I'm going, we, we didn't go through this revolution to see people get hurt like this. Everyone should. We thought everyone is going to get a check from, and that's what I told my dad. I said, yeah, you don't know, you're old. We're going to be getting, getting it like a, every, one, every month we're going to get a check for oil because we're, we're pretty rich. And that, and my dad said, no, you, can, you cannot trust Mullah. They are, they, they can completely, we refer to them as cats because you can, do the best thing for them and all of a sudden it's going to turn around and scratch you and they're the same way. So exactly the same thing happened. Exactly the same thing happened. Once they got into power, they started massacring, killing people. I mean, finding people. Oh yeah, you're, you're, you're not with us. We're going to kill you. It wasn't at least Shaw would kill only the leaders. Only. I mean, if you had, you know, you were, you would be talking about the government. They would talk to you or they, put, they would put you in prison and then you would, they would let you go. But these guys, 
it wouldn't mess around. It would just come and get you and take you and then shoot you. But what, so what, if you, what if you had said to them, I don't believe in the teachings of Islam? Oh, you couldn't. That was out no, of, out, unheard of? No, 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 no. You would, you would back then. I mean, now you can say stuff. But back then, it was so, they were so, so strict. Mm. And they had absolute power to kill anybody. Anybody. So that had to be one of the biggest turning points of your life, outside of when you escaped, obviously, which we're going to get to that. But Well, you know, when, when the revolution happened at the beginning, we thought it was awesome. We were so excited. But then shortly after, I found out that it's not for me. It's just, this is stupid. What we did was wrong, and they abused us, and they lied to us. And then even Khomeini said, <clears throat> I'm a religious man. I don't know anything about politics. As soon as I get to Iran, I'm going to go to Rome. Rome is a holy city in Iran, and a lot of mullahs go there and study. He said, no. He went out and he took over Shah's uh, palace in Tehran. And, and he was the one that conducting all these uh, killing and, and telling people that only you have to, you have to cover yourself. I mean, my aunt was, a, she, she was a very, very intelligent woman, educated and lived in Tehran. And they said all women have to wear the cover. I mean, when I say cover, Ryan, means you can, you can only see your face. Now it's gotten better. You can only see your face. And my aunt said, are you kidding me? I'm not going to do this. You know what they did to people? They started putting fears in all women by throwing acid in their faces and crushing um, like bottles and, and things like that. And they would, if you had like a lipstick, they would swipe it up against your lips. And once they did this to a bunch of women, guess what happened to the other woman? They said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're, gonna, we're gonna cover ourselves because, so that was, this is how I always tell people, fear controls people once you put fears in them, you know? And that's what they did. They put the fear in us and that's how I think they controlled us incredible it's hard to even uh comprehend how impactful and how big of a change that must have been in your life what happened to your to your wrestling career were you still wrestling at this point still going to school well the wrestling during revolution for about <clears throat> until after revolution wrestling was everything was shut down <clears throat> because of um you know we would people would attack buildings mainly obviously the government buildings and you know let them in fire and things like that. So then once the revolution happened, then um, shortly after that, and I think it was 1980s that the war started. And that's when they started recruiting um, young people to join, you know, like different, different military air force or, or Khomeini's guard or, or uh, Marines or whatever. So, then we were able to uh, go back to our regular life, but it was still very limited. So mm. our gym was open, but uh, you know we would only practice during the day, and everyone had to go home before dark because 
we have to cover our windows um, completely, especially in my hometown, because we were so close to Iraq and we could get bombed, which we did get bombed during the day and, and sometimes at night, but so no one, everyone would stay home. So we still practice, uh, but it wasn't as rigorous as before, as fun as before, because, because like my sisters, they wouldn't let them, you know, they would not let a male coach coach the girls. Mm. You have to be a girl coach to coach the girls. Was your dad and still coaching or no? My dad still worked, worked for the organization for uh, uh, um, our hometown at that time, still was. And, um, but another thing that I forgot to tell you, my sisters and my mom never saw me in action wrestling because they, do, they never let women, you know, come in a, uh, a gym, watch men wrestle. Or, or, you know, at least other sports, like maybe soccer, they would. During Shah, obviously people could, but when Khomeini came in, everything was very, very restricted. Mm. So you end up, you know, the Iran-Iraq war that follows, you end up joining the, the Air, Force, Air Force, even though you didn't support the government, because the, you tried to go to college to be a teacher, and they said you weren't religious enough. So what happened, uh, you know, all universities, you have to be one of the things that they ask you to interview, you have to be religious. But I guess when I passed all the testing to get in a, a physical education university in my hometown, which would have been great, uh, I came after a guy who was a world champion. I took second in my class. And, uh, you know, with testing, whether it was a practical test, which was you had to do a lot of uh, different um, activities. And then of course you have to do a written test. And then the last thing was you had to um, talk to this mullah. I guess the guy sensed that I wasn't a you know, religious person uh, and I was rejected. So I couldn't, I couldn't get into university. Even though I was very qualified, but, but I guess, okay, fine. And then, of course, because of the war, I started, okay, everyone has to go. If you don't, we're going to have to make you. But since my older brother was in Air Force in South Iran, in, in this base, and because of him, my mom and dad said, you know, we can, my dad said that you can make it work so you can join the Air Force. So I joined the Air Force and I did the training in Tehran for three months, two months. And then from there, I moved to which was, this place was absolutely so close to the uh, Iraq border that, you know, we would get bombed or our, our planes would go and bomb different cities in Iraq. So you were in a combat situation. I was in a combat situation. I was, uh, um, again, because of because of my background and my brother, I was able to not to be the guy who is watching the base with a rifle, but instead I was in, I was, um, I had two jobs. One job was driving the pilots from their dorms to the, uh, to their airplane. And my other job was 
you know, take care of the resting room in our base. So that's where I had a lot of good, a lot of, you know, it was, it was perfect place for me because I felt so comfortable. And I earned a lot of respect because, you know, like I said, Iran, you know, people respect a lot of wrestlers. And then my, my officers would come in and they want to wrestle and I would beat them up. And they, they even give you more respect because they go, wow, this guy is pretty tough. So, so I was able to wrestle and, and, and continue wrestling until opportunity came that, to go to world championship military. Yeah, so you, to your point, you start training again. The revolution happens in 79, but then in 82, the world military games, which um, were happening in Venezuela that year, you make the team. How do you qualify for the team and get to that tournament to start with? And let me tell you something else. This was the first tournament after the revolution wow. because they completely Iran, no one from Iran could compete anywhere outside of Iran. And this was the first one. The reason they allowed us to go, because obviously it was, uh, you know, Khomeini wanted to show how great we are. So <clears throat> I competed in my, my, uh, and you had to, I had to qualify for Air Force. So that was not hard. So I qualified there and took first, and then you go to nation. And when you go to na national, in national, you wrestle with different branches. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And then once I uh, qualified, I said, great, I can, I'm ready to go. And all of a sudden they said, oh, there is one guy who is who is gonna um, couldn't um, couldn't compete in nationals, but now you need to wrestle him. And I said, wait a minute, how come he didn't wrestle? They gave me a bunch of bogus stuff, and I said, okay, now now what? They said, well, you have to wrestle him. And I go, who's this guy? This is the guy who beat me when in our age group I was thirteen my first time going to nationals. And, and this guy in national TV, he beat me 9-3. And, and I was like pretty embarrassed because pretty good guy. Yeah. And I'm going, and I, I had that, obviously that fear in my head. You know, I'm, I'm contemplating it all. Oh my God, I have to wrestle him. And then I, I'm sure you heard the name of Barzagar. Yeah. I, you know, I trained in his club in Tehran. So I went there and I was sitting there and he goes, hey, Abedi, what's up? How come you're kind of moping around? I go, well, you know, you heard about this. He goes, yeah, I heard, but you know, you should go and compete. You should beat this guy. So I went in and we had to wrestle, we weighed in 57 kilos, which was 125 and a half. And then, you know, wrestle this guy. And he caught me in the move in the corner and he turned me back then. Remember, every time you turn, you got a point, you got two points. So he earns, you know, he got six points from this cheesy move that he caught me from the, uh, it was like a gut wrench, but he was putting me to my back and back, you know, back to my base. And he got six points, you know, and I, I'm losing six zero. So I came back and I took him down three times, six three. And then I snapped him down. I have this 
a great technique that I do. I attacked the foreleg and I did the fore cradle. I put him to his back and I pinned it. And the committee said it was a fluke because I was losing. I go, well, this is a sport. This is how it is. But unfortunately, my coach couldn't say anything because he was a, a military guy. And, and these guys were all top-notch uh, uh, religious people. So they said, you have to wrestle again. I wrestled that guy again. I beat him pretty good. And then they said, you have to wrestle him a third time. But this has never happened in Iran. In Iran, they, it's not like here, mini tournament, you go, you know, like a three out of five. I mean, they never do this. You always, you know, once you go to, a, um, to that camp, if you have to wrestle someone, you wrestle them one time and that's it. So the last time I wanted to wrestle them, I almost wanted to just say, you know, forget it. I am not going to wrestle. I'm just going to go back to Kermanshah. So I was back in practice with Barzgat. And then he goes, listen, you can beat this guy. I heard he has trouble with meniscus. So you should be attacking that leg as much as you can so get him tired. And that's what I did. I attacked that leg. I couldn't take him down. I attacked that leg. And it got to a point that I was able to take him down easily. And it got to a point that when I was on top of him, he wasn't even moving. So I ended up uh, winning. And they said, okay, now you can bring your picture. And you can join the team uh, on Monday for training to get ready to go to World Championship Military in Caracas, Venezuela. And did you know at that point that you were going to defect? Oh, for sure. Because I knew, because we didn't have money. You know, a lot of people with money left Iran. And I, we did not have, you know, like, you know, $20,000 to go to somewhere else. And, and, and it was just unknown stuff that we just, I couldn't do. And at that time, my younger brother was in prison. He was... Um, must have been 14 years old and and the reason they put him in prison because someone said that my brother was selling books because the books were lefty yes. and and they put him in jail and poor guy they did so many bad things so he was in jail for 12 13 months but but then he was in jail I was competing to go, re- to go ready. And then once I made the team, I went, I went back to the prison. So I'm getting kind of choked up. That's okay. So... I, I went in and I said, hey, I told them that, that I was going to leave. So basically wanted to make sure that he was okay. Yeah. And he responded by saying, well, I would, have, I would be doing the same thing. 
So that is a conversation that you know, most people can't even imagine having. Um, I'm sure you had to have a similar conversation with most of your family. Have you seen or talked to any of them since? Um, well, you mean <clears throat> back then or now? Back then, like when you were, when you were leaving, oh, how, how soon no, after I did you talk to them? I didn't want to tell anybody else. My aunt knew in Tehran, I told her, but um, I didn't tell anybody else because I didn't want, I didn't want anybody to get in trouble. So, yeah. so when I told him, he gave me a pretty good feelings. And so I went back and, and that's what I decided to do. I said, whatever happens, I'm not going back. So, um, so the team um, was late. Um, because they had to do, because um, our passports, they were, they were one passport. It wasn't like an individual passport. So they had to get permission for us to go from Tehran to Paris, and then from Paris to uh, Madrid, and Madrid to uh, Venezuela. So as you know, Venezuela is part of the OPEC and is good friend of Iran. Uh, back then, and, and still they are, and so um, we ended up going, and it was crazy that this was my first trip leaving Iran, and actually getting the plane, and you know, experiencing a lot of stuff. Uh, I was overweight, so I couldn't eat and drink anything. Uh, that was my first time ever I saw a, a Coca-Cola in in can. I've seen it in bottle, but I've never seen it in can. And I'm like making, you know, as you know, when you cut weight, you always make plans of, okay, these are the things that I'm gonna eat and drink after yes. making weight. So I made it to, uh, we made it to Caracas and there were 20 of us, 10 wrestlers for Greco, 10 wrestlers for freestyle. We had a great, great uh, head wrestling coach who was a world champion himself. A very respectful general. Uh, uh, and then we had um, six or seven bodyguards and this guy that he was head of everybody else and he was telling us what to do and all these places that we went to, we had to <clears throat> pray and which was like, I'm not one of them. And I always, I was always in the back because I really didn't care what they were doing. So <clears throat> uh, when we arrived to Caracas, the airport was near to the near to the water, and when we got out, it was very uh, tropical, and it was hard for me to breathe. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, how, how am I supposed to cut the weight? I was still over about uh, less than a um, kilo, which is like 2.2 pounds. Um, so I, um, my coach, they decided to take us to a sauna. We went to a sauna, made weight. And then we had to weigh in the next day at uh, 10 a.m. Uh, they kept um, the Iranian wrestlers, all of us, in a military base. Um, all the other teams, like American, Italians, and French, and all these teams, they were staying in five-star hotels. And we were in a military base, bunk beds, uh, because they wanted to control you know, or, you know, whatever we're doing, you know, so they knew 
whether we're here and we're in bed, instead of being in a hotel and who knows what's going to happen. So were you, so, when you were in Paris, like, did you get to walk around Paris in between flights or was it all strictly controlled? No, 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 we did. And that was the thing that my first cultural shock, because this is 1982, revolution happened 79. And for all these years, you, um, like I said, you know, every, all women, they had to wear, I mean, obviously I was getting older too, get, you know, wearing only chador and then covering and you never, you know, TV is all controlled. Everything is controlled. You don't see anything else. So it's basically, I'm walking in August of, um, 82, in Paris, imagine people are, how are, um, we're basically all 20 of us, we were like, our mouth was all the way to our chest because we could not believe the colors, you know, because we always saw black, black, black. And then all of a sudden people are laughing, talking out loud, kissing, holding hands. And I'm like, like, well, what's going on? What is this? It was just like, we were amazed. And then, of course, from there, we went to uh, Spain and we had like a few hours there and we saw more of that. And it just like, it's, you can't even, I couldn't even comprehend what was going on. I go, wow. Because when they keep you in a box and feed you garbage, you just assume that there is nothing else outside. You just accept it. But all of a sudden, I remember back then there was no internet, there was nothing. So everything was super controlled. And all of a sudden we're, you know, in the middle of Europe watching these people, we were just amazed. In the summertime, yeah. I mean, people, people the way people wear clothes. Yeah, short shorts, way, skin showing, short, everything. Everything. And I were like, we were young. I mean, we're like going crazy watching these people. I mean, so were you at that point that that had to solidify in your mind the decision that you were going to defect was there a risk of being caught defecting or is it a safe you know pretty much if you want to get away you could you know obviously there were some risks but in my mind anything better than iran anything if i could live anywhere it was better than iran because it, it was either you know, when I look back, I knew if I, if I went back, two things had to happen. Either I just, you know, follow their garbage and just be one of them, or I'm going to say something and I'm going to get thrown into prison or get killed. Yeah. So, and I couldn't stand it because I'm not, I was never that kind of person. I always, you know, said what it was in my mind and I'm not a a religious person. I can't, I couldn't act like, even for money, I couldn't act the way they, way they were. It just, it was not me. So that's why I said, you know, whatever happens, happens. Plus when you're young, I had I, literally, the only thing I worried about my family, everything else, I go, nothing is going to happen to me. So. So you, that's the mindset you have going in. You make weight that morning, you wrestled, you win the tournament. That had to be an incredible 
feeling of joy to, to win that? Well, <clears throat> I remember vividly I made weight and then I stepped down. I go, I asked my coach, I go, can we eat? And he goes, he kind of gave me a look. And the guy, the head of the bodyguard said, no, 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 you cannot eat. We have to wait for an Iranian chef to come and cook because these people are foreigners and we don't want to, we don't want to uh, eat their food. And I'm like, are you serious? I haven't had anything for last 36 hours. And you're telling me that I have to wait. And while everyone else was doing their own thing, Ryan, I was going because there were other people in the cafeteria. Leftover that people had there, like bread and they left their orange juice. I'm like turning around, grabbing the orange juice and just drinking the orange juice, grabbing a piece of bread, putting a little bit of jam on it and, and just eating what, this is how we were. I mean, at least I was and a couple other guys did the same thing because we couldn't wait another four hours for the guy to come and feed us. So how dumb that's is that? what like my God, it, 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 because they, the religion, because they're fanatic, because their, 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 their mind is as big as a, 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 a peanut. And that's why they think that other people have something. I don't know. It just crazy. It, it really bugged, bugged me. So I was, it, 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 I was like, I need to eat so I can wrestle. And that's what I need to do. So you make weight, you wrestled. How many matches were there in the tournament? We had, the tournament was two days. Um, I won my first uh, four, and then I had to wrestle an American wrestler who was, um, who actually, he was a better Greco than freestyle because he took, he wrestled Greco as well, <clears throat> and he was uh, he was from Marine, and um, I wrestled him, and I it was a pretty good match, but I, I beat him. It was a close match. I think I beat him like seven two seven three, and that's when it's something that nobody can take away from you when you get in that podium, and I mean I'm like I'm the king. I'm like I I was in my mind. All the training that I was uh, that I did, it just it was going through my body, and I'm like, is is all that worth it? Because the feelings that you get, you cannot, you can't buy that feelings. You just the feelings that, even now it's been years when I think about it, it's just the great, great, great feelings that you get, that you know because of pain that you had to, I had to go through cutting weight, training, training, training. And now, um, you know, I got my medal. Uh, I'm the world championship, world champions in this tournament. I felt really, really, really good. So. Were you allowed to celebrate at least then or the bodyguard still right there on you? No, they were not because we wanted to take pictures with the American wrestlers and they came and they didn't let us. And there was a young woman who was carrying our um, flag and, and they had to, they didn't want her to touch the flag. It was just a stupid thing that, that the government, they, they did. And I'm like, seriously, you're ruining the whole thing. And those American wrestlers, they, they, 
I mean, you compete and, and like I said, on the mat, you'll, you'll wrestle someone off the mat, you're always yeah. friend. And, and we wanted to take pictures and exchange. No, they would not let us, let us do that. So when did you, how did you make friends with the American to, to defect? Talk us through that process. So while I was there, I talked to two other guys. They said that they were going to stay. But it was hard for me. I didn't know him well, but it was hard for me to trust them. But there was another guy who was a Khomeini's bodyguard, and he was a wrestler. And we grew up together. And he was completely the only reason he had to join the uh, Revolutionary Guard because of his dad. And, and he and I, I t- he wasn't going to go back, but I heard from other people that they said when when we go back he him as well because um because he was hanging with me he was with me okay. because i i would just like i told you i would say what, what was in my mind so i didn't care so because of my the way i was behaving you know they didn't like it and because he was with me because of association associating with me they were gonna, he was going to get in trouble. I said, listen, if you go back, you're going to be in trouble. So let's stay with me. And then he decided to stay with me. So it was two of us. And then we talked to other two. And then um, the, one of the other guys, he was um, a pilot. And he uh, could speak English pretty good. So he started talking to the wrestlers secretly about this. And that's how they went and they, they talked to their head coach and they said, okay, we're going to help you guys. And what that's how they got involved. Then? And then we, we arranged it. We said, okay, um, at, at, you know, like midnight, you guys can come to the base. But remember, America back then, not so much now. It, it, it was pretty powerful when you're driving that van with American flag and with the license plate, nobody would dare stop you. So they came in with the, with the van, a few wrestlers, and then we said that we're going we're gonna to come out the parking lot. <clears throat> and then we gave them the number of the, the place that we stayed. So they were, they were in a parking lot waiting. But unfortunately, we had these bars on the windows. So what we did, we, we, we were only be able to put our medals in, the, in our clothes and throw it in the, from the fourth floor down to the bushes. And then one by one, we left the, the dorm. And then Barton said, what are you doing? I said, the second floor, they had like a vending machine that you could get a little bit of like, a, you know, chocolate water. We said, we're going to go down there and get something. And we were able to get out one by one and then meet down, grab our stuff. They put us in our van and they took us to a house of Iranian, a guy we met at the tournament. And he said, I can keep you guys in my house for a few days. So we went to his house. They dropped us there, the American wrestlers. We stayed in his house a couple of days. He rode. Uh, in Spanish, he wrote uh, a request for 
uh, political asylum. And then he took us to the police station and dropped us off. And then the police came and we said, you know, we're those guys. And then um, they took us in and they said, we have to keep you guys here for a week for your security. They had a, it was like a cell, but it was pretty relaxed. They had TV and it wasn't that bad. So we stayed there for a week, but um, they couldn't speak English. So they had, they found an Iranian guy who lived there who was Jewish. That guy came and, and he was our uh, translator. But the guy, wherever he was saying, he put so much emphasis on religion. So we didn't know what he was saying. So the government decided to do this because they knew. Why well, didn't Venezuela, sorry to cut you off. Why didn't Venezuela just send you back to Iran? So, well, two things, because of America, because they, they were afraid because they wanted to show America they are a very democratic country. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were in, a, in a situation they couldn't do, they didn't want to keep us, but then they didn't want to keep us. So, so they were like in that kind of situation. That's why they said, okay, we're going to give you guys six months to stay after six months, you have to leave. So they gave us passports that it was good for six months. And they said, after six months, you have to leave. And then after we left the, um, the police station, it, we, we were able to contact the, the head coach in Venezuela because he was at the tournament too. So he said, okay, I am gonna help you guys to become a Venezuelan uh, citizen so you guys can wrestle the following year at Pan Am Games because he knew that we were top-notch wrestlers. So <clears throat> he took us to, he paid from the, the Federation of Wrestling in Venezuela. He paid for a hotel. He got us a room in this okay hotel under the roof with four beds and shower. And we were able to, you know, eat here and there at the, at the hotel. So uh, that's how we, wow. then we, every day, that, every day we would go and train with their team at the university because their, their team was training at the University of Caracas and we were able to practice with them. But it got to a point that he said, I cannot do anything for you guys anymore. The government doesn't want to help you, and I can't help you anymore. So then we met a bunch of uh, freedom fighter Venezuelan students at university, and those guys said, hey, we all live pretty close to the hotel, because we didn't have money for food. They said, okay, Tuesday night you can come to our house and you can eat here. Monday night you can come to here and, and you can eat here for free, but of course, Sometimes we didn't, you know, we just had no way of to eat and we would go find, you know, like next restaurants in the area they were in the trash and just pick up like good steak and that leftovers that they threw in the trash. We just eat that. And that's how for a few months we did that. And, you know, they helped us, but it was, it was a pretty um, crazy situation. 
It's frustrating. It's as I'm listening to this, I'm just so frustrated and how all the stupidity that's involved and how much you guys went through. It's just, it's so, it's just your resiliency is incredible. So, last thing before we go, how did you get from Venezuela into the United States? So, um, from Venezuela, we just <clears throat> decided to um, call the Iranian embassy in Venezuela, in Caracas, tell them that we were going to go back and, and, and help us. But we didn't want to give him time to be prepared. So we talked to that guy for about two weeks. But every time we would say, oh, we'll come tomorrow. And that guy sent a fax to Iran and he said, I have the wrestlers and the wrestlers are coming back. Of course, the, the, the news, they announced it in Iran and they said, oh, the Iranian wrestlers who didn't escape, they were lost in Venezuela, they're coming back. Now imagine my family, my family knew that what was going to happen to us. So after two weeks, we just uh, got a, a car and we showed at the, at the embassy and the guy didn't know what to do. And he went back and forth. He goes, oh, okay, I'm going to make you guys. He made us these false papers that we were painters at the embassy and we worked there. And he gave us this and he goes, you guys gonna, here's your ticket. He bought us the tickets because, um, you know, he had to do that. And then he goes, you're gonna go from Caracas to Spain. And then from Spain, the, the people from embassy, Iranian embassy in Spain, they're waiting for you at the, at the airport and they're gonna put you in Iran air and you're gonna go to Iran. So we said, okay. And now we're telling the guy, hey, you gotta come with us because you have to come and help us. Oh, fake, you know, telling him all these things. And the guy says, oh, no, 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 don't worry. I talked to them. Nothing's going to happen. You guys are going to go in the national TV. Just say that you were, it, it, this wasn't, your action wasn't because of political reason. It, it was just merely you were stupid and young. And you wanted to have fun. Now you got everything out of you. You, you want to go back to your family. And then the government is going to send you back to war. Uh, for you know a few more months and then you're free but we knew that wasn't going to happen because what happens they send you there someone kills you and they go well we don't know we're investigating the assassination but nothing is going to happen anyhow so we got on a plane now as we were leaving the embassy I grabbed a can opener and put it in my pocket. Remember back then you could take knife and things like that in the plane. So I put it in my pocket thinking when I get to the airport in Spain, in Madrid, if somebody grabs me and wants to take me, I'm going to start swinging and hit myself. Once they see me bleeding, they're not going to put me in a plane. They're going to take me to the hospital and then I can escape again from the hospital. That was my thoughts. So we, you know, we got on a plane and we, I sat next to this guy who was from Spain and my Spanish was pretty good. And I started explaining to him, showed him the picture. And I said, hey, if somebody grabs me, please yell and tell the police that what's happening because this is going to, you know, this might happen. Luckily, I mean, I'm not religious, but always somebody watched over, over me all my, you know, all my years. So instead of going directly to international airport in Spain, Madrid, 
they had a stop in Canarian Island. And, and the, the immigration there was checking, you know how sometimes you come to America, you stop in Canada, and then when you come to America, you just don't go yeah. to immigration. The same thing happened to us. But in, in Canarian Island, the guy was saying, well, uh, how do I let you in my country with this paper? What is this? And I was trying to explain that, listen, we have a ticket, our, our plane leaves from Madrid to Tehran, so we're just gonna go through the, you know, through the transition. And, and the guy goes, well, I can't let you do this because you have to have a visa. Finally, it took up to a point that the pilot got mad and passengers were mad. And so they said, okay, 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 we're just gonna let you guys go. So we got on the plane, instead of going to international, we landed in national. Those guys were waiting for us there. And then we got out of the plane. When we got out of the plane, we, we got out in four different, we didn't get out together. We thought it would be better. And then we said, let's meet in the first bathroom that we see. Once we got into the bathroom, you should have seen us throwing up because Ryan is the matter of life and death. Because I felt it in my heart that, that if they catch me, I'm done. There's nothing nobody could do once they take me to Iran. So we ended up, we stayed, we stayed in the bathroom for a half hour. We left the bathroom. As we were looking around, we saw a guy who was selling a newspaper, Mujahideen. This was back then they were fighting against Khomeini. So I told, we told the guy who we were, and the guy goes, no, no, you guys are lying because those guys escaped in Venezuela. So we showed him our little ID, and the guy goes, wait. He went, and about 45 minutes later, three guys came with suits, Iranian. And they picked us up. They took us to their home and they said, okay, we're gonna, we want you guys to support us and sponsor our, our organization. I wasn't political at all. I said, you know what? I do anything to stay safe. So that's what we did. They had a news media with different, you know, like New York Times and uh, local news and European news. And, and then we, um, we stayed in Spain for, um, almost two and a half years. How incredible was just the, the life in Spain? Were you eating food and, and drinking oh, and having good times? It was the best time in, in Spain because we started training. They let us, you know, they were paying us a little bit of money. I actually, I was able to do a camp in, in San Sebastian in um, north of Spain for six months. I had such a great time training and, and, you know, doing, showing moves and, and just living in life. It was the best thing ever. What a story. Yes. We've gone for an hour and a half and I have to jump here in a couple of minutes, but I mean, I, we got to have you back on because we haven't even got to the United States yet. You know, this is like, this is a, it's just an incredible story, and I want to thank you for being able to share it with us. Thank you so much. It's been an honor, sir. I, I look forward to having you back on. Is that okay? Of course, anytime. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, sir. Have a great day. All right. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text WRESTLE to 555-888. That's WRESTLE to 555-888. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner. 
as well as our website, wrestlingchangemylife.com. Take care, y'all.